Chapter 5 of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. Chapter 5 Cardinal Newman's Text. By some strange witchery peculiar to himself, John Henry Newman contrived to interest a whole nation in his own spiritual history no man ever succeeded as did he in making his soul's secret struggle a matter of general conversation and popular excitement it is difficult at this distance of time to understand the irresistible appeal that he made to the universal imagination and to the indisputable authority that he wielded over the public mind for years his word counted for more than that of any other teacher he was quite easily the greatest religious genius of his time for one thing, everybody seemed to know him. His very appearance was striking, magnetic, compelling. Anthony Fraud, who knew him well, tells us that he was above the middle height, slight and spare. His head was massive, his face remarkably like that of Julius Caesar. The forehead, the shape of the ears and nose, as well as the lines of the mouth, were all peculiar, and I should say exactly like Caesar's. I have often thought of the resemblance, and believe that it had extended to the temperament, for he was imperious and willful, although along with these traits his character was marked by a most engaging gentleness, sweetness, and singleness of purpose. Even down to extreme old age, Mr. Froude says, he attracted and retained the passionate devotion of his friends and followers. His early history was familiar to every Englishman, his wistful and pathetic pilgrimage, and especially the pilgrimage that enriched our literature by the addition of lead kindly light, had been followed with breathless curiosity and deepening compassion. And when at length he retired to little more to settle the question on which everything depended, an entire people waited for his decision with the strained intensity with which at other times they await the result of a general election or the issue of an important military engagement in that modest cottage at littlemore the lonely thinker shut up to his vigils and fastings and prayers appeared to the multitude as a kind of intellectual caruso cut off from everything and everybody he seemed the emblem of utter isolation men wondered whether deliverance would come to him and if so how and when the whole world knows how that grim struggle ended my dearest pussy he writes in a letter that has become historic and that bears the date october eighth eighteen forty five this will not go till all is over this night i am expecting father dominic the passionist i trust he will receive me into what i believe to be the one and only fold of the redeemer i do not expect it will take place before friday when the silver was creeping into his hair, Robinson Crusoe revisited his island. When Newman was an old man, withered and bent, perhaps also broken-hearted and disappointed, he paid a secret pilgrimage to Littlemore. He endeavored to evade recognition, but the curate of the little place detected him. Mr. Lytton Strachey tells the touching story. As, he says, the curate was passing by the church, he noticed an old man, very poorly dressed in an old grey coat with the collar turned up leaning over the lichgate in floods of tears he was apparently in great trouble and his hat was pulled down over his eyes as if he wished to hide his features 
For a moment, however, he turned toward the curate, who was suddenly struck by something familiar in the face. Could it be? A photograph hung over the curate's mantelpiece of the man who had made little more famous by his memorable sojourn there. He had never seen the original, but now, was it possible? He looked again, and he could doubt no longer. It was Dr. Newman. He sprang forward with proffers of assistance. Could he be of any use? Oh, no, no, was the reply. Oh, no, no. But the curate felt that he could not turn away and leave so eminent a character in such distress. Was it not Dr. Newman he had the honor of addressing, he asked, with all the respect and sympathy at his command? Was there nothing that could be done? But the old man hardly seemed to understand what was being said to him. Oh, no, no, he repeated with the tears streaming down his face. Oh, no, no. It was not until many years after the crisis had passed that the story of that silent struggle at Littlemore was fully told. The letter to Pussy was written in 1845. The Apologia Pro Vita Sua was published in 1864. Yet the interest of the people had not waned. Although he warned the nation that he had no romantic story to tell, the multitudes waited for his confessions with the avidity with which men await the thrilling narrative of a polar explorer. Not the letters of Pascal, says Dr. William Berry, nor those of Junius won more instant success. The Apologia appeared in all hands, was read in clubs, in drawing-rooms, at street corners, on the tops of omnibuses, and in railway trains, and everywhere the person of the author was discussed, and his pathetic and striking sentences quoted. And why? Dr. Berry gives the reason. Here, he says, instead of a fresh volume added to the interminable stores of controversy, was a life revealed in its innermost workings, the heart put under a glass that made it transparent. It had been Rousseau's boast that he would do this unparalleled thing. He would reveal his secret soul, and he did it, at what a cost to the decencies of human reticence, to the laws of friendship, to the claim of gratitude. Newman, observing a punctilious self-respect, nor making free with any other man's reputation, set up in the Temple of Fame this tablet, on which all might read the story of his days, anticipating, said Mr. Gladstone, whom it awed and overcame, the last great judgment itself. Here, then, is Cardinal Newman, one of the strangest and saddest figures in our history. To the end of his days he was a child of the twilight. The encircling gloom was ever about him. He was always far from home. He was, it has been truly said, a pilgrim of eternity. But he was a pilgrim making his way o'er moor and fen, or crag and torrent, till the night is gone. He was never at home in Protestantism, and the church in whose lap he pillowed his throbbing brows left his heart still hungry. Yet, through the intervening mists, he saw far off the white glimmer of sunshine. Through the encircling gloom, he dimly beheld the kindly light. What was it? We shall see. 2. I was talking one day to an old ministerial friend of the Reverend Charles Bride of South Australia, who told me a story concerning Newman, which so far as I can discover has never been printed before. Mr. Bright was, many years ago, a minister at Birmingham, and in those days Cardinal Newman was in residence at the oratory at Edgebaston, nearby. Mr. Bright was one evening spending an hour with a brother minister named Walters, who, with his wife, had been holiday-making in South Wales. 
In the course of their tour, Mr. and Mrs. Walters stayed at Yonduno, and the landlady at whose house they engaged rooms, on discovering that they came from Birmingham, told them that among her boarders she had a Mr. Charles Newman, whose brother was a celebrated Roman Catholic priest in the city from which they had just come. Charles Newman was a poor fellow of feeble health, wandering intellect, and grotesque hallucinations. He was for many years the anxiety and the burden of his celebrated brother. But, continued Mr. Walters, the woman told us that she had a letter from the priest at Birmingham, and also a letter from another brother, Professor F. W. Newman, who lived at Bath. I asked her if she would mind showing me these letters. She said that she would be delighted and seemed gratified at my interest. The letter from John Henry Newman, the priest, revealed deep concern for the welfare of his failed brother, and requested her to be sure to supply him with all that he required in the way of comfort and nourishment. He begged her further to bring the subject of Christianity as earnestly as possible under his brother's notice. If, he said, there was a Roman Catholic priest in or near Yanduno, he would like his brother to be visited by him. If, however, no priest was available, or if his brother should object to seeing such a priest, she was to do her best to induce him to receive the ministrations of a clergyman of the Church of England. Should the invalid refuse to see even an Anglican clergyman, she was herself to bring the deep need of his empty soul home to him in the best way known to her. And whatever else you do, or fail to do, added the priest at Edgebaston, you are to be sure to read to him the fifty-third chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. The letter from F. W. Newman simply urged her to secure for his brother every comfort and attention. I asked her, continued Mr. Walters, if the letters were of any use to her. She saw my meaning at once and said that if I cared to have them, I was very welcome. Mr. Walters brought the letters away with him, Mr. Bright told me, and he pasted them in a book, and during the evening that I spent at his house, he produced them and showed them to me. 3. Whatever else you do or fail to do, says the Cardinal, you are to be sure to read to him the 53rd chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. The 53rd of Isaiah. I can see the good landlady sitting in the room of her afflicted boarder, and from the Bible she reads to him the great words that his eminent brother has prescribed. Listen. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Whatever else you do, or fail to do, you are to be sure to read to him the 53rd of Isaiah. That insistence upon the 53rd of Isaiah convinces me that, through the encircling gloom, Newman fixed his tired eyes upon the kindly light. Beyond the controversies and obscurities of Protestantism and Romanism, he saw the man of sorrows despised and rejected and acquainted with grief. 4. 
The 53rd chapter of Isaiah says, Pussy, to whom that famous letter from Little More was written, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is an antidote to the bitterness of any sorrow. The Ethiopian eunuch thought so. He was compassed about by the sorrows of ignorance. How can I understand, he cried, except some man teach me? And Philip stepped up into his chariot and expounded to him the 53rd of Isaiah. Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself? or of some other man asked the perplexed eunuch as he read of the man of sorrows despised and rejected and philip began at that same scripture and preached unto him jesus and as a result the eunuch went on his way rejoicing the fifty-third of isaiah had proved as dr pussy says the antidote to the bitterness of his sorrow the earl of rochester thought so he was plunged in the sorrows of skepticism Macaulay, in his History of England, speaks of Rochester's reclamation from atheism as one of the most signal triumphs of Bishop Gilbert Burnett. Yet the bishop only did for the earl what the evangelist did for the eunuch. He expounded to him the 53rd of Isaiah. The earl avowed, in pale astonishment, that the verses contained an accurate account of the life, character, trial, death, and resurrection of the crucified Saviour. He thought it as plain as the history of him given in the Gospels. John Coleridge Pattison thought so, and because he thought so, he devoted himself to his missionary life and died his martyr death. He was oppressed by the sorrows of sin. As a little boy, he said that he should like to be a clergyman because he thought that saying the absolution to people must make them very happy. His first sermon, he used to tell his mother, should be on the 53rd of Isaiah. He felt as Pussy felt that it would be the best antidote to the bitterness of sin's sorrows. Philip Malchathon thought so. His heart was heavy with the sorrows of farewell. The frailty of his body was compelling him to abandon his work. On the last Good Friday of his life, he went down to the University of Wittenberg and delivered his final address, and he chose as his theme the 53rd of Isaiah. John Knox thought so. He was encircled by the sorrows of death. And during that last illness, he asked that the 53rd of Isaiah should be read to him every day. Whatsoever else you do or fail to do, says Newman, the writer of that letter from Littermore, you are to be sure to read to him the 53rd chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. For the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, says Pussy, to whom that letter from Littlemore was addressed, is an antidote to the bitterness of any sorrow. But why? Why is Newman so anxious that the 53rd of Isaiah should be read to his brother? And why is Pussy so sure that the 53rd of Isaiah is an antidote to the bitterness of any sorrow? It is Bunyan's great heart who has given us the most satisfying answer to these questions. The pilgrims had enjoyed to the full the bounteous hospitality of good Mr. Gaius, and before taking leave of him, they brought their felicity to a climax by joining in family worship. Christiana asked her son James to read a chapter, so he read the 53rd of Isaiah. When he had finished, Mr. Honest asked why it was said of the Savior that he had no form nor comeliness. The words are spoken, replied Mr. Greatheart, concerning those who lack the eye that can see into our prince's heart. That is very striking. Newman's biographer has told us that by means of his apologia, the cardinal puts his heart under a microscope 
so that every man can read it through and through. The 53rd of Isaiah does for Newman's Savior what the Apologia does for Newman. It enables us to peer into our prince's very heart. 5. I have only heard of one person in all the ages to whose stricken soul the 53rd of Isaiah brought no comfort at all, and that exception was a woman. For her, the 53rd of Isaiah gleamed with no kindly light. It was black with the darkness of midnight. The 53rd of Isaiah was no antidote to the bitterness of her sorrow. It was sorrow's crown of sorrow. Mary, the mother of Jesus, it is said, could never bear to read the 53rd of Isaiah herself, and she would never let her divine son read it. It was like a knife in her heart whenever she caught sight of the sublime passage. But the reason that made it as bitter as wormwood to her is the reason that has made it to us the fountain of all consolation and grace. For it was to her what it is to us, a glimpse into the heart that was to be broken at last upon the bitter cross. End of chapter 5